What would you like me to do for you? That's Jesus' question to Bartimaeus. What would you like me to do for you? Those of you who were in worship last week might recognize this question. Do you recognize it? James and John came to Jesus and he asked them the very exact same question. What would you like me to do for you? These stories are at the end of three chapters of Jesus' preparation of his disciples of what is to come. And as he is going along the way, he is telling people about what is to come for him. That he will establish a new kingdom, but it will happen after he is killed, and after he was bar- is buried, and after he is raised again. In the three chapters of which this is the last story, these, this is a hard concept for anyone to grasp. They understand that Jesus is the one who is to come. But exactly what that means is a little hard to conceive. At the beginning of this section, of these three chapters, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're a prophet. Some say that you're Elijah. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus tells him, you are right. And yet, it is hard for the disciples to understand what that means. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus goes on to say that he will suffer and that he will be killed and that he will be buried and be raised again, Peter tells him, that's not how this story goes. That's not how the Messiah comes into his new kingdom. Remember? And Jesus tells Peter to get behind him. He is thinking of things of humans. Indeed, Jesus is wrestling the whole way through these three chapters, which immediately following this story, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. Throughout these three chapters, Jesus is trying to get his disciples to begin to allow themselves to think of the kingdom of God differently than what they have in mind, because the Messiah is different than what they have in mind. Even Bartimaeus who comes to Jesus, he cries out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is because of the understanding that the Messiah would be a part of the lineage of David. And David, who was a great king, the new king will come to establish God's kingdom here on earth, and he will most surely be a descendant of David. Bartimaeus knows that Jesus is the one to come, and yet, even in his proclamation of who Jesus is, he doesn't quite get it right. Jesus says, yes, in essence, I am the Messiah. But it does not look as you expect it to look. And the kingdom of God is not established in the way that you expect it to be established. It does not have a hard, fast perimeter. You cannot plot it on a map. It does not have an infrastructure of governance that looks like other kingdoms. This is where he takes issue with James and John in last week's gospel when they ask if they can sit right, one at his right hand and one at his left when he comes into his kingdom. And he tells them, that's not mine to grant. And partly because the kingdom doesn't look like most kingdoms look. Bartimaeus comes to Jesus, though, and when Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus says, I want to see again. 
And Jesus answers that request as Bartimaeus has it in mind. Jesus' kingdom is established on the ground of God's love. That is the ground that makes up the kingdom of God. And every time that Jesus responds to a request from one of his disciples, it is toward that end, toward the advancement of the kingdom, toward making God's love known in the world. So when Jesus refuses some requests, it is because it does not go to the fullness of God's love. Jesus will answer that prayer, that request, in the fullness of God's love, which may be different than what we have in mind. The disciples wrestled with this back in the contemporary day of Jesus. We wrestle with it now. What does the kingdom of God look like? How do I know I'm in it? You know, they say that, well, I'm actually not quite sure what the quote is, but something about um, annoyance is the mother of invention, something like that. Any good invention addresses an irritation, right? It solves a problem that we recognize that we have. Necessity is the mother of invention. Well, for some reason, we thought it was necessary to have something other than a map to tell us where to go. And GPS was developed to attend to that need. Isn't it wonderful? There's a little rectangular box with a flashing line, and you type in your destination address, because that's where you want to go. And there's a little dial that spins, and all of a sudden you swoop down your little blue arrow that's you onto a blue line, and it says, starting route to, and you know you're on your way. You don't even have to worry. You're just going to listen to that GPS, and it will get you there. I, for one, am, am one that likes to actually look, look at the list of steps even before I turn to the voice. I like to see if I've got 40 miles on step three and then step four, five, and six come right after one another. And then maybe it's a big gap again before step seven. But it is lovely how it is that that GPS, because we know our destination, we know we're on the right path. And we can turn our brains off and just wait for her or him in whatever accent we've chosen, tell us when to turn. So often, we decide and identify whether or not we're on the right path by our destination. And if our destination is to be a part of the kingdom of God, we can find ourselves somewhat frustrated. How do we get there? How do we know that we're on the path that leads to that place that we want to be? The fact that Jesus in Matthew's gospel talks about the kingdom of God being among you makes that even more confusing. We wonder if it's supposed to say, arrived, arrived, arrived. How is it, then, that we know where to go? Thomas voices this question in John's Gospel. When Jesus tells his disciples that he's leaving to go a place to prepare for them, and that he will call him to himself, and you will know the way, he says to them. And Thomas says, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. When you're with me, you are on the right path. You are in the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God is not ours as faithful people to actualize or to realize, as James and John so fervently wanted to do. We're not going to bring it about. We're not going to make the kingdom of God achieved. We are part of the kingdom of God, and we are part of it when we are rooted in God's love. God's love is the ground of the kingdom of God. And we know the way because Jesus shows it to us in the ins and outs of our life. Some of you have heard me talk about the book by Brian McLaren called Finding Our Way Again. There's a reason I'm so excited about that little book. One of the reasons that I'm excited about it is made evident in the first few chapters of the book. I know some of you have already read that part. Some of you haven't read it yet, and maybe you won't even start reading that book until December or January or maybe next March. Some people have it on audiobook and they're finished already. But I want to bring your attention to one particular part in the beginning of the book Finding Our Way Again by Brian McLaren. He talks about practices that we can do that root us in the kingdom of God, that root us in God's love, that through the very nature of the practices, we learn to see God's work at work around us, how it is that God is revealing God's love in our very midst, where we are in the here and now, so that we can see how we are a part of it. He outlines it in several spiritual practices which are actually shared by all of the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Here, though, he's talking about them in the religious tradition familiar to us as Christians. The sacred meal, he says, the practice of coming to the holy table every week, calls us to reconciliation with God, with our neighbor, and our enemy and thus counters the centrifugal forces of selfishness and resentment. By coming to this practice, we remember how it is that we are united to one another. Common prayer, that which we do on a weekly basis, but that even which we do on a daily basis alone or with others, counters the drudgery, reminding us to know God in the affairs of daily life. It infuses the so-called secular with the sacred. The practice of daily prayer infuses the so-called secular with the sacred. Financial giving bridges the gap between the rich and the poor and begins to heal the rift that expands between them. In the practice of keeping Sabbath, one day set aside for the goodness and delight of God, the worker, it liberates the worker from the external tyranny of exploitation. Keeping Sabbath also liberates the worker from the internal tyranny of workaholism. The liturgical year, this method that we go through of seasons of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost, counters amnesia and apathy. It counters amnesia and apathy with memory and anticipation. The spiritual practice of fasting requires self-control, and so it defies the self-indulgence of gluttony, lust, and greed. The spiritual practice of going on pilgrimage leads us to cross boundaries and thus undercuts nativism, nationalism, ethnocentrism, and racism. Through these traditional practices of our faith, 
we learn how to be a part of the kingdom of God. We learn how to be rooted in God's love. That's the ground on which all of us stand. It has no parameters. It has no final destination. Its fulfillment is in God alone, and that is something none of us can make happen. But we can be a part of it. And Jesus invites us to reflect on how it is that we can be a part of it. He comes to us and says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And in that question is the invitation. How is it that we, with our whole selves, can be a part of God's love? Allow God's love to be through us and in us because it's on the common ground of God's love that God's kingdom is made. It may not look like we think, and that's because it will be better than we think. God is a God of abundance, longing to give us that which we need in service to the abundant love of God. Amen.